This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 354. doesn't have an AI research lab. Facebook does. Amazon does. And this helps them minimize execution work, make room for idea work, and then reinvent themselves over and over again. And it's worked out really well for them. Hi, and welcome once again to the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. I believe in reading your way to success so much so that I'm writing a book about it, a book that comes out in August, August the 31st to be exact. I'd love for you to check it out. You can actually pre-order the physical copy right now on Amazon, go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash book to find out more. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. If you're looking to up your reading game but not sure where to begin, the Read to Lead podcast is a great place to get yourself started because I'm not only going to help you narrow your reading list but bring you key insights and valuable ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. Today, that person is Alex Kantrowitz. Alex is a journalist and has written a book, his first, called Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. Alex and I are going to chat about the book's theme of the engineer's mindset and how you can make it work for you, what big tech is getting wrong and getting right, how all of this can be applied to education, and much, much more. Now, say what you will about big tech. They've certainly done their share of damage, as I've hinted, but they've also done a few things right along the way. Things that Alex says we can learn from if we're willing to listen and take time to educate ourselves. Alex has conducted over 130 interviews with insiders from Mark Zuckerberg to hourly workers, both current and former employees of big tech companies, in an attempt to show how these tech titans operate cultures of invention. Alex Kantrowitz is the founder of Big Technology, a newsletter and podcast about the tech giants. Those tech giants are going to uh, serve as our uh, focus uh, today. He's a former senior technology reporter at BuzzFeed News, and his work has been referenced by dozens of major publications, from The New Yorker to The Wall Street Journal to Sports Illustrated. Alex is also a graduate of Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Uh, His new book, his first, and the one we're diving into today, is called Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. Alex, uh, I'm thrilled to have you here. Loved your book. Welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. Well, your journalism background is obvious as I, as I read through uh, your book. What was it like pulling all this together? I mean, there are so many people in so many different companies that you got access to. Uh, how long did it take? What was this process like for you? Oh, yeah, this took years. You know, I've been covering Facebook and Google primarily for, uh, you know, close to seven or eight years before I decided to start writing this book, digging into their culture. And so I had a decent idea of what was going on inside those companies. But for companies like Apple and Amazon and Microsoft, you know, I had obviously been paying attention to what they were doing from a business standpoint. Uh, But I realized it was going to take a true deep dive and, you know, close to an embed in order to be able to uh, really dive in and understand how their cultures work and especially Amazon. So, um, you know, this the writing, the book writing process was really a matter of, you know, for Amazon, at least showing up in Seattle and saying, (laughs) I'm not leaving this city until I know the story. Uh, And and, you know, as I focused on the other companies, I took the same approach. And uh, I do think that it, it interestingly knit together by the time the book was completed, there was a through line that seemed to make sense in terms of why these companies have gotten stronger as they've grown bigger, which sort of defies 
the common path for big companies, which is that they get bureaucratic, clunky, and then they fall apart. Mm. And you had a, a family or two along the way that was kind enough to put you up for a couple of weeks here and there too, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. Uh, I was able to catch it in, in Seattle for this family, lovely family that had me stay in the house and watch Lady the Cat and <laughs> definitely had to give a shout out to Lady uh, in the acknowledgments. And, you know, something that's happened after the book is, you know, the family and I have gotten even closer and now I'm, you know, sort of on the regular rotation coming up and, you know, watching the cat and hanging out with the grandkids. Uh, and in the middle of all this quarantine madness, I drove up there and uh, just, you know, it was nice to spend time with another life form. So... Lady, if you're listening, I want to say thank you for the companionship. <laughs> I want to give you a chance to share the origins of your uh, your book's title. Talk about the, the mantra that uh, it's always day one. Where does that come from? Yeah, so that's a saying from Jeff Bezos. And when you look at it on its face, it seems just like he's beseeching Amazon employees to work as hard as they possibly can. Mm. Uh, and, and that's sort of what it seems like. You know, if you are on your first day or you're working as a startup, you got to bust your butt. And then mm. maybe like down the road, you think you can possibly, you know, take your foot off the gas pedal because you've established yourself. There's this great moment in Amazon history where Jeff Bezos is at this all hands, uh, basically filling a, a basketball arena with Amazon employees and taking questions from some of the you know folks out there. And one of their employees had a, you know, with a pre-submitted question, asked Bezos, what does day two look like? <laughs> and, you know, it's like, it's like the third rail of Amazon. You don't ask Jeff Bezos what day two is. <laughs> it's always day one guy. But anyways, they asked. Bezos seemed to really relish answering the question. And he said, day two is uh, stasis, you know, followed by irrelevance, mm. uh, followed by slow, painful decline, followed by death. Uh, and that's why it's always day one. And like the whole crowd like went up and you know, laughter. And I was like, well, these people are real masochists. Like, come on, don't you enjoy celebrating Thanksgiving with your family? Mm. But it turns out that the meaning is much deeper than that. And it's really more of a business strategy. So work smart versus work hard type of thing. You know, just to think about it on your first day as a company, uh, the best part about doing that, besides all, you know, the, the embrace of all the fear of, you know, are we going to make this thing work is you don't need to spend a single ounce of your energy towards supporting a legacy product. Most companies establish a flagship product and then they just spend all their energy supporting it mm. uh, instead of thinking what's coming next. And, you know, largely because they just don't have the capacity to do that. And so at Amazon, always day one means it sort of channels this startup mentality, which mm. Bezos tells his employees, yeah, we have a, a lot of businesses out here. You know, we have third party marketplace, cloud service provider, uh, hardware manufacturer, voice computing. But don't worry about that. <laughs> when you come in every day, your job is to think about what is the future uh, of computing? What is the future of Amazon going to look like? And then build that without any regard for how it's going to impact the businesses that we've built mm. to establish. Going back to the way we started this conversation, like at the end of the day, these companies are growing more dominant because they embrace that mentality and then the structure, the cultural structure and leadership and processes to underpin it. Uh, so they don't get stuck. That's why companies get bureaucratic. Oh, well, this is how we do things around here because we got to support the mothership. But, you know, all the tech giants have found ways, maybe except for Apple, have found ways to keep reinventing themselves. They do come in as if it's their first day. And that's why I think we're seeing this really strange moment in business history where the bigger getting bigger and everybody else is trying to figure out why. And, and you're kind of sort of hinting at a couple of my next questions, which have to do with sort of this history between ideal work and execution work, as well as this concept of or theme throughout the book of the engineer's mindset as, as a way of, of thinking. Can you speak to those two specifically? 
Definitely. So I think that our, our workplace history has gone through like three different shifts or we've, we've existed in two different, three different eras, two big shifts. Mm. Uh, the first, and this is amazing because the workplace has changed so much in the past hundred years. I mean, if you think about a hundred years ago, we're in a factory economy. How much has that changed now? We're talking about machine learning, you know, being, being implemented in the workplace. It's unbelievable. So we started out in, the, in this industrial economy in the factory. You know, we were just we were, we were manufacturing things. Mm. And so, you know, the work there was all in service of supporting the one idea that the person who started the factory had. So, like, if you think about work, then it's all execution work. You're there to execute what the idea person said. Then we move into the knowledge economy. And then all of a sudden, work starts to split. Of course, you have execution work stuff that's, you know, all about maintaining the current business. But you also have this new thing that comes up, which is idea work. We're like in the factory, you know, someone says, hey, we're making widgets, but shouldn't we make screwdrivers? You know, they'd get laughed out of there. <laughs> no two weeks, right? They would just be, be walked right out. But now in the knowledge economy, we started to appreciate employee ideas uh, because sort of their knowledge is what, what drove the company. Uh, and so you had to start to listen. The thing is, no matter how much the managers wanted to listen, it still took so much work to just maintain what existed. Like even though, you know, the, the companies were, were doing things more than making widgets, you know, the so the processes and, and the amount of work that was required to support what was going on was just totally uh, overwhelming. And so mm. that's why in most modern day companies today, people come up with ideas and managers react by saying, you know, but you should really be doing your execution work. Like we really need to you know, support what we're doing, doing now. And you know, we, we say we like idea work, but mm, not really. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think we're shifting now into this third era of the workplace where companies are seeing the real benefits of workplace technology, machine learning, automation tools, even enterprise software that make our companies more efficient. We always talk about, you know, the need to become more efficient, but what, what the heck does that mean, mm. you know, underneath the surface? And I think all these tools, what they do is they minimize execution work, make room for ideal work. So companies can spend less time supporting their flagship products and more time inventing new ones. And the tech giants, unsurprisingly, are first to this because they have the most advanced internal technology uh, development teams in the world. My company doesn't have an AI research lab. Facebook mm. does. You know, mm. Amazon does. And this helps them minimize execution work, make room for idea work, and then reinvent themselves over and over again. So they really can operate as if it's mm. their first day. You know, it's not just a mantra. It's an operational way of doing things. And it's worked out really well for them. Yeah. You mentioned some of the things a moment ago that, that Amazon got right, Alex. Uh, but Amazon is not without it, its flaws, of course. Customer obsession sort of being the rule there. What are some of the drawbacks, though, uh, of their of their obsession with the customer, would you say? No doubt, Jeff. I mean, you know, the one thing I'll say about this book is I, I'm writing about five companies. Four of them are under investigation by U.S. regulators. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it's kind of weird because I'm saying, hey, we should emulate them. But mm. uh, I do think the rest of the business world can really take notes and, and emulate some of the processes that they're doing. And, you know, they've, they've, gotten, uh, they've gotten this big because they haven't had real challenge. Mm. Um, and I think there's a way to do it ethically and do it right by co-opting their systems and, and, you know, not squeezing the little person. I mean, I'm, you know, all these all these companies, they're they're getting crushed because, you know, they're, they're being exclusionary in terms of like, you know, crowding out competition. So, you know, this book is about giving the competition some tools to fight back mm. um, using the giant's own own methods. So, you know, you asked about Amazon. I mean, they, by the way, they're under FTC 
uh, investigation. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll see what happens with them over the next couple of years in terms of, you know, some of the uh, pushback on their practices. But customer obsession, you know, they, they have these leadership principles inside Amazon. There's 13 of them and people follow them, you know, more closely than their own religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amazonians, they talk about it, you know, off the clock. When Amazonians marry each other, they sort of rate each other based off of the leadership principles. Uh, they teach them to their kids. And customer obsession is the first one. Uh, we hear a lot about this from, from Amazon, um, that their passion is for their customers. But like I do think sometimes, you know, a company can become so obsessed with this that they start overlooking anything else. They, mm. they become like a horse with blinders on and they can't see the negative effects. So, you know, for Amazon, customer obsession often means getting someone a package, you know, in a, in a day or two, or, <laughs> you know, no matter the human cost. And, and I think that can be a drawback. I think, you know, looking at the way that, that your obsession impacts workers, impacts the other companies in the economy uh, is also important. You know, be obsessed with customers, but make, make sure everybody comes out OK on the other end, uh, because ultimately we're all living in the same society. And, and if you start you know, to harm some segments of it, you know, in favor of your goals, you, you can end up, you know, creating some some downstream effects that are bad for everyone. Um, I think it was yesterday I read that the DOJ is suing Facebook for allegedly improperly hiring foreign workers and discriminating against U.S. workers. And then I think it was Wednesday of this week, Google has fired their their star AI ethics researcher, one of one of the few black women in the field. And it was just interesting to to read those stories in the context of your book and, and, and realize, you know, to kind of drive home the point that there's a lot of great things these companies are doing that we can learn from. And also there's things we don't want to do. Yeah, look, I, I don't shy away from that either. I mean, I speak with some of Google's walkout leaders uh, and, of course, like, you know, sit with Mark Zuckerberg and ask him about, you know, what happened with all the things that have gone wrong inside mm-hmm. Facebook recently. You know, I, I put a note about this in, in the prologue. We can learn from the processes, but these companies, you know, there, there are two, two sides to this, right? One is invention and one is growth. Mm-hmm. And I think some, sometimes companies prioritize growth more than they should, where invention should be the thing they prioritize. I mean, of course, in today's world, companies need to grow, but they've become so obsessed with it that when someone says, hey, you know, here's something that can, you know, might slow us down, but we should concentrate on into, in terms of you know, helping society, then they, you know, look at that sideways and, and sometimes, you know, treat people wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think the AI ethicist, you know, is basically saying, hey, can we slow down a bit and, you know, examine the way that we do business? Mm. And obviously, she got in the way of what Google was, you know, was hoping to do. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we have to wait for all the facts to come out. Sure, so it doesn't sure. look like Google acted in a, in a really great way there, especially having read some of the emails that, that came out. So my point is this invention. Good. I don't think anybody in the world will say, you know, the idea of, you know, being inventive is bad. Of course, you need to be thoughtful in your invention, but you know, inventiveness. We all, we, I think, we all can agree is is a good thing. But yeah, we have to, we have to. When, when it comes to the growth part, I think that unfortunately, the tech world has gotten way too obsessed with it. Uh, and of course, Wall Street venture capital has a good, uh, has played a good hand in that. But for for the folks reading the book, I caution: like, be inventive, but also if you're going to grow, grow in a healthy way, and, and don't put growth above above values. Mm. Well, speaking of some of those healthy ways, let's focus on on that uh, for a bit. What about Zuckerberg and and Facebook's openness to new ideas? I mean, granted, maybe they don't always get listened to, but the fact that Zuckerberg is open to new ideas is, I think, great. Uh, how do, how do they travel to him? How does that work? How does that happen? Yeah. So so the book, the the real seat of the book is when I met with Zuckerberg 
in 2017 for the first time. I've met with him a couple of times after that. And, you know, it was very different from your typical CEO interview. So most CEO interviews as a reporter, you know, they have a product they want to talk to you about. You know, they bring you in the door. The CEO says, hi, nice to see you, you know, pretends to remember your name, <laughs> then does 25 minutes of monologue talking about how exciting the new thing they're going to talk about is. Then there's a PR person in the room watching your facial expressions. And if they're <laughs> blank or quizzical, they say, well, thank you so much for coming. Uh, we'll see you next time. And if you look somewhat engaged, they'll say, any questions? But with Zuckerberg, it was totally the opposite. Uh, mm. We got into his office and, you know, we had read a little bit about what he wanted to talk about, this manifesto that sort of talked a little bit about how Facebook is going to be involved uh, in, in people's lives. And then, you know, the, the thing is that instead of just lecturing, he, he wanted feedback. And he's like, what do you think about this? What do we miss? You know, what could be better? You yeah. know, uh, where's our blind spot? And I thought this was weird. <laughs> uh, we don't we don't usually see this thing happen, and especially you know someone running a company you know who's sort of known for being obstinate. And I was like, was this like a sales tactic, or was this the tip of something uh, <laughs> much deeper? So I started asking everybody that I knew who was mm. in and around Facebook, what was going on with that feedback thing. And it turns out that feedback is just totally baked into Facebook's culture. So new employees get trained one or two days on this uh, crucial conversations training that teaches you how to give and receive feedback. There are posters around the office that say feedback is a gift and major meetings end with requests for it. Mm. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I think that why does Facebook have a feedback culture like this? Why is Zuckerberg asking? And I think the truth is because the, the company is realizes how vulnerable it is. Mm. People on social media, they they give up on platforms extremely quickly. I mean, ask Tumblr and MySpace and Vine what happened <laughs> when they stopped caring about, you know, other people's ideas. They sort of went down the chute pretty quickly. Mm. And Facebook doesn't want to be that. Uh, and again, it goes back to this principle of how do you reinvent? How do you approach, you know, doing business if it's your first day? And I think being open to ideas from anyone is is a key way to do this. And Facebook has executed this through a feedback culture. And yeah, of course, it's a feedback. Oftentimes people think feedback. How did I do? You know, people think feedback is a good way to let folks know it can happen before the evaluation and only that. But I think at Facebook, it's a much broader perspective. It's something that says, Anywhere on the hierarchy are, are open to your ideas uh, and you can be open to mine. Mm. And we're not always going to agree. But the most important thing is the channel to get them there. And again, if we have more room for idea work, the building that channel is exceptionally important because you got to get the best ideas in front of people. And, you know, I think Zuckerberg has also created this this culture where people feel empowered to go up to him himself and say, look, uh, the company is going in the wrong direction. And here's why I think we should change. And of course, you know, not, not everyone gets listened to, as you mentioned, but that saved the company in, in, in a number of occasions. Mm. Let's move to Google for just a second. As large as it, as it is, it's it's amazing to see just how good a job they've done at, at bringing so many uh, disparate departments uh, together. The collaboration there is, is is unlike just about any other company I've seen. How, how do they make that happen? Yeah, so I call Google the hive mind. Or for the Star Trek fans out there, it's kind of like the Borg. <laughs> they just <laughs> operate, you know, as a collective consciousness. Mm. And... Um, it's a theme through the book, but they do this through technology. Uh, they've interconnected the company through a variety of different you know, social networks and then settings on some of the tools that we use every day. So they have uh, uh, their own meme board, which sort of mm. uh, you know, keeps the company talking to itself. It's a big company <laughs> now, but um, you know, everyone's making memes about what's going on in Google. It's called MemeGen. They have thousands of, of intercompany listservs where they talk about everything from, you know, back in the before times ways to bike to Mountain View. 
<laughs> to, uh, you know, their salaries and, um, you know, politics or anything of that nature. Mm. They uh, have, well, I guess this has also been pulled back a bit, but um, they do have Q&As with leadership and, and, you know, open it up to questions, you know, from, from all employees. Um, but I think most importantly, they open, they operate with uh, Google Drive on, on a default open setting for almost all divisions. Mm. So that means that, like, when you're working with someone inside the company, you can go into their documents and read about what they're doing, read their meeting notes, you know, read their contacts, look at the accounts they're speaking with and, and look at the PowerPoints and even jump in and work with them as they're put, putting together a PowerPoint. Mm. And this is going to feel really strange you know, for anyone <laughs> who doesn't work at Google. Uh, it feels like an invasion of privacy. But as you speak with people inside the company, they tell you two things. One is they, they can build uh, ideas and build together much faster than before they can collaborate better because once you accept the fact that people might jump in and add an idea or you know suggest a way to tweak your language or thought process you know you're gonna you're gonna be open to to way more uh, mm-hmm. and also it cuts down execution time because I mean any one of us who's been in a meeting uh, knows what happens in meetings right we spend <laughs> the first you know let's say it's an hour-long meeting we spend the first 50 minutes talking about what happened until now mm-hmm. and then 10 percent talking about action but if you can come in well researched on what's already happened and the open Open Drive certainly allows Google employees to do this. Then you can actually have a productive meeting and uh, <laughs> and actually talk about what needs to get done. Um, it's it's crazy because you know that's something that that you'd imagine would be standard and something that people you know across the world would be interested in in figuring out how to improve since we do spend so much time in meetings. Uh, mm. But you know if, I, I, whatever it is, whether it's the power trip or the attachment to tradition or the aversion to trying something new. Meetings are still terrible across most companies. Mm. So, you know, if people get anything out of this book, you know, maybe it's a better way to, to run meetings because Amazon, you know, has its own take on that as well. Mm. I'll throw a, a shout out here to my brother's company. He's the CEO at Docket HQ, which is a company trying to help make meetings better. So, so Darren, there's your shout outs. <laughs> it's doing the Lord's work. Doing the Lord's work, yes. Uh, well, Apple seems to be the, the only one of the five companies you highlighted that at least so far hasn't embraced the engineer's mindset at all. Uh, how, do, how do they fare going forward, Alex, in, in your view? So let's talk about the engineer's mindset for a moment, because I kind of glossed over it when I was answering that uh, before. So Zuckerberg, Bezos, Cook, uh, Satya Nadella, and Sundar Pichai, they're all trained engineers. And so, you know, we talk about how do you elevate ideas? Uh, Because if you're spending time, you know, on idea work and and you need to reinvent, you have to have good channels to Mm -hmm. elevate ideas. And what do you model your model your culture out? So I used to work in sales. Okay, so here's how it works when you uh, and for folks who who work in sales, probably this will ring true when you have an idea. And in most sales organizations, you bring it to your manager and they bring it to their manager and they bring it to their manager and they bring it to their manager. And you go like (laughs) you go AVP, you know, VP, senior VP you know, territory head, you know, eventually you get close to the decision maker. And if anybody along the chain, you know, says, uh, we don't want that, then, you know, it sort of uh, falls by the wayside and your idea doesn't get brought to life. Engineering organizations are much different. They're much more collaborative. They support people bringing ideas from uh, anywhere inside the company Mm. uh, to leadership. Like it's not weird for someone who's on the, you know, the lowest level of an engineering organization to bring it to somebody at the top. And, you know, they all have to be monitoring what folks are doing because if one part of the process breaks, you know, the whole thing can break. I mean, think mm. of like a power grid, for instance. You know, you got to collaborate if you're an engineer uh, on working on a power grid because, you know, your little thing blows up. And next thing you know, the entire eastern seaboard mm. <laughs> uh, is out of power as, as we've experienced in our lifetimes. So Apple 
unlike the other five, other four companies, I think it it, it, it has been good at, at transforming itself, at least, you know, under the Jobs era, you know, this whole idea of coming in and not worrying about legacy. I mean, think about the iPhone, right? The mm-hmm. iPhone all of a sudden makes, you know, for many people, the iPod obsolete mm-hmm. and puts less emphasis on, on the desktop computer. But they've been really struggling to to invent beyond the iPhone. I mean, mm-hmm. their voice computing system with Siri is terrible. They tried to build an autonomous car. That whole process has fallen apart. And it's not because they're bad at technology, but it's because they have, they, they've just struggled to implement mm-hmm. implement this engineer's mindset. You know, instead of being led, led by sales, they're being led with design, but it's sort of a similar process where design dictates and everybody builds. And that worked fine when Steve Jobs is like, make the, make the iPhone, make it thinner and smaller. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're moving in this world of, of uh, you know, that's being defined by artificial intelligence. And, you know, again, where, where employees need to bring ideas to leadership, uh, I just don't see that happening inside Apple. I mean, everybody that I spoke with inside, you know, the other four companies seem to be somewhat happy or at least not ashamed that they work there. But mm. Apple employees are by and far and beyond like the least happy employees out of wow. any of the tech companies. They don't really feel listened to by management. Every other company, there was, uh, I asked, how do you get ideas to leadership? There was an answer. You know, I asked mm. that to Apple, you know, Apple employees or ex-Apple employees, how do you get ideas to leadership? And they laughed. <laughs> it doesn't uh, happen. Fear, it doesn't happen. They they get dictated to. Mm. Uh, and they, they fear, they feel underutilized. And uh, ultimately, it's a, it's a fairly poor experience for for mm. the folks working in inside that company which is strange given their outward sheen that mm. the PR machine has so deftly uh, developed and and they seem in eternally siloed do they not i mean vir- oh, yeah. virtually no collaboration at all no collaboration so apple siloed its its folks for a reason right they mm. wanted you know and it sort of made sense when you were refining an iphone right you want experts mm. to be experts so you had one team working on glass you don't want them talking to the battery people <laughs> and then you had the battery <laughs> people you know okay fine so yeah they got to talk to the processor folks but like you don't want the battery people commenting on like how much bezel there should be on the uh, on the hardware mm. so basically they said go out, go in do your job and the leadership will assemble this together. It worked for the iPhone. The only thing is that, like, you know, when, when we're in a world today where everything is more interconnected and, and software is, is pervading everything, it just doesn't work as well. So, I mean, I talked to people who are working on the HomePod, for instance, who never, who never saw the hardware, hardware product. I mean, how, I mean, okay, fine. It's, it's definitely the computing is more important. But how do you even vision who your customer is if you can't see what you're working on? And, you know, the machine learning engineers, you had machine learning engineers sitting side by side, one doing face ID, the other doing uh, detection on the road for their autonomous car. Mm. And they couldn't talk together. And so it's no surprise that, like, because they didn't have this shared knowledge and compared notes, uh, that the car struggled so much. Uh, because who are you supposed to speak with when you're trying to get through hard problems if you can't speak with your coworkers? Wow. Well, uh, let's move then to the last one in the time we have left. Microsoft, uh, since they installed a, a new CEO, uh, what was it, back in 2014, I think, has made a lot of, uh, of positive uh, major changes. Uh, in what areas, in your view, do they still have room for improvement? Yeah, look, that's a great question. I mean, I think like with Microsoft, first of all, they, they bring everything together that I talk about in the book and that we've talked about in this discussion. They had this flagship product, which was Windows. And they were definitely in this day two mentality, right, where they were like, you know, well, this, this is our asset and we're going to do whatever we can to protect it. And that means like ignore, ignoring uh, mobile. I mean, mm. Steve Ballmer, when the iPhone came out, famously laughed at it. 
and laughed at the possibility that it could sell well uh, because he was a desktop operating man in a mobile world. <laughs> and so and this really held Microsoft back for a really long time. Uh, cloud computing. So so they missed mobile. We know that. I mean, they ended up spending, what, like $7 billion on Nokia and did nothing with it. Mm. And then they also uh, were working toward, they, they, they were trying to figure out what to do with cloud because cloud, which is basically supporting computing done on the browser, mm. threatens the desktop operating system. Right. Because if you can do your programming, you can access your programs on, on a browser, you can access them on a Chromebook, you know, or, or an Apple machine mm. and not just, uh, you know, something running Windows is an existential threat to this big asset. So, you know, they sat back and eventually Amazon, you know, launched the cloud business. So it only, you know, so they went back to day one, quote unquote, when Nadella came in and said, look, you know, and this sort of touches on the theme we've talked about throughout. But he was like, look, flagship product doesn't matter. Mm. Uh, we need to figure out a way to invent to the future or we're going to be done. And that's when Microsoft made this pivot to mobile and to cloud and basically said, our job is just going to be able to, to, to provide the infrastructure for people to build on the internet. And we're going to make our applications available everywhere. And that's been the reason why the company has uh, revitalized in the way that it has. Okay, now what can it do better? I, I think there's still elements of that legacy culture from the Balmer era mm. uh, that they need to figure out a way to, to fully get rid of. And I'm talking about toxic stuff. I mean, Microsoft, when, when you're protecting the asset, what do you do? You have a, a handful of people in charge of the asset. You know, they don't want to listen to anybody else that has ideas to do anything anything different. It was a real, you know, folks have told me, uh, you know, loudest man in the room culture. And it was often a man mm. and not very good at listening. And I think some of this pervades uh, inside Microsoft. There have been issues in terms of the treatment of women in, in that company. Uh, and that's been documented. But there was a long email chain about it a couple of years ago inside the company where like people were sharing their bad experiences. And, mm. you know, it's like Microsoft will say, well, that was under the Balmer era. But no, this happens under Nadella, too. You know, culture change is not something that happens overnight. It's something you need to be persistent about and, and never claim victory on. And so I think Microsoft knows it has a long way to go. Well, uh, talk a bit, if you're willing, about the research you did, Alex, for Chapter uh, 6. Uh, I just personally thought it was a really interesting way to go about writing that particular uh, uh, chapter. Do you mind? Yeah, Black Mirror chapter, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, we talked a little bit at the beginning about how, you know, where do these companies go wrong? <laughs> and, you know, I think a big part of it is, you know, of course, we talk about the obsession with growth. And it, a lot of it is also the willful, willful ignorance to what could go wrong. And then, you know, stuff inevitably goes wrong and they go, how can we know? <laughs> we couldn't know. It's like, no, actually, you could. And the way you do it is to, you know, not surround yourself with techno optimist and only positive thinkers. Mm. Uh, and actually, Facebook has acknowledged uh, this in some in some way. I mean, obviously, they ha had their fair share of controversy and stuff they should have been able to prevent. I mean, one example, you know, we could, there's the Russia thing is a long story. We shouldn't get into it too mm. deeply. But I mean, at the end of the day, you shouldn't let people buy ads with foreign currencies, you know, mm. for election ads, uh, mm. you know, in, in a different country. And they're like, oh, we never could have known. It's like, no, you just weren't thinking that way. <laughs> and so now they've hired some adversarial thinkers, but I wanted to take it to another level because I describe a lot of workplace technology in the book. And I didn't want to make that mistake. I mean, of course, I'm gung ho about where things are going. But mm. if anyone picking up this book, I wanted to be, you know, clear eyed and letting them know that things could go wrong. And I thought the best way to do that was to invite the adversarial thinkers in on my own. So I brought Meg Ellison, who's an award-winning science fiction writer, mm. and Wael Gonim, who is uh, you know someone who led the uh, social media-powered uh, Arab Spring in Egypt. 
uh, the revolt there uh, over for dinner. And Weil has some some different ideas of like the use of technology and he's seen where it could go right and wrong in his life. I brought them over for dinner and I said, look, like I'm going to give you a little description of like a bunch of different technology that I describe in the book. And let's think about where they where it could go wrong. And we said, why don't we the best way to do this is why don't we make you know, our own little set of Black Mirror episodes, right? Modeling off of the Netflix show and say, if I describe to you the technology, what is a story that, you know, is plausible or, or, you know, might, yeah, it's plausible using this technology in some of like the worst case scenarios, just so we know. And uh, yeah, we sat for dinner and we talked through it. It was a, it was a wild couple hours. It got, it got pretty dark at times, um, which is what we expected. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, I felt the exercise of talking through all of the things that could go wrong and, um, you know, actually really thinking about it uh, just showed how useful this exercise could be. And I believe, and I've written about this, I believe every tech company should hire a, t- a science fiction writer, you know, either full time or contract and have them do this two similar exercises where they say, all right, you're building this product. Are you aware of this? You know, can this happen? And actually, I, I don't I don't know if you were planning to go this route, but we actually had one of the scenarios that we we dreamed up, you know, almost come to fruition a few months later. Mm. Mm. You want to hear about it? Yeah, yeah. So we're thinking about all these communication networks inside Google. And we said, what if like uh, foreign power realized that you could really rally the masses there and sort of get Google employees, you know, acting, you know, in a way that they want similar to how the you know Russians might have got, gotten Americans, mm. you know, acting the way they want when they, you know, used Facebook to rally rally them. And we ended up saying, you know, having this like wild scenario where like maybe like the U.S. government planted some agents inside Google, uh, which had access to, you know, a location of a person of influence or a person of interest that they wanted to arrest or kill uh, and basically rallied the employee base around this mm. uh, protest to give up their coordinates. And then the U.S. government eventually got it and took the person out. <laughs> you know, it sounded like super far fetched uh, at the time, but then a couple of months later, uh, the FBI released this this complaint saying that two Twitter employees had been turned. Uh, allegedly by agents, uh, you know, close to the Saudi royal family to access the information of dissidents and pass it and potentially pass it along. Mm. And I just like looked at that story and I wrote about it for BuzzFeed, actually. And I was mm. just like, man, not exact one to one, but right. close to home. And it all it, it all comes down to this thing that's called inside threat. Right. We talk about the outside threat who can hack into a company. But should companies be looking more closely at the people inside and saying, um, you know, at least asking themselves, where are we vulnerable to an inside attack from a foreign government? It turns out Twitter wasn't really anticipating that. And that's what happened. And it was a very ugly chapter in, in Twitter history. Maybe they should have hired. Uh, maybe they should have brought Megan and YL and for dinner <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. Just so they could have known where, where, where things might have gone. It might have helped them. Well, when it comes to uh, to education, Alex, there is not sort of um, engineer's mindset style to education. It's about, you know, grades and tests and remembering information and memorizing and all that. How will education, in your view, need to shift if it's going to succeed in, I guess, accommodating invention? Yeah. So I think our education systems, uh, if we're being honest about it, are, are developed to serve the needs of those in power. Right. And when those in power were, you know, manufacturing and industrial based folks, uh, they needed people who would sort of do what they were told. So we developed an education system based off of memorization and spitting back. It teaches Mm. people, you know, to be subservient and to not think originally. uh, And (laughs) and it worked really well. 
uh, until the economy shifted. Mm. And now we're we're moving into a place where people need to be able to think originally, ask questions of leadership, think outside the box, be more unstructured in their thinking, be creative, be, be willing to take chances, be willing to fail. And the old manufacturing style system of education just doesn't work that way. Memorization and spit back is the worst possible thing you could be teaching people right now. And so I do think we need to reimagine our education system. Of course, like, you know, what we're, we're, we're right now serving an obsolete power. So let's at least empower the folks who are mm-hmm. going to be in this economy to be able to thrive in it, to be, uh, you know, to accept failure, to think outside the box, to think inventively and, and to understand that you have to give yourself some margin of error because without that, you're not going to be inventive. I mean, when I was a kid, one of my favorite people to read about was, was Thomas Edison. Uh, I don't know, maybe my parents got me a book about him, but I'll never forget how many light bulbs that dude tried <laughs> before one worked. About 10,000, tried a lot of light bulbs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So why is why could Tom Edison try like ten thousand light bulbs, mm. blow up a couple of things in Menlo Park, New Jersey? <laughs> but <laughs> people today freak out if they get an A minus. You mm. don't have the parents call. Or here's a current example: have their parents cheat to get them into you right. know the right school on the SAT. Well, our our society today is completely out of whack in terms of the incentives. Uh, that we need. And in part, it's because we're in a winners and losers society and people want to win really badly. So we need to shift those incentives to make it a place where, you know, companies get the people they want, but also people are empowered and and are trained in a way that are going to make them successful in our modern workplace. Mm. Alex, my my last couple of questions aren't directly related to the book, but before I ask those, anything else from the book you want to make sure we walk away with? Well, look, here's the thing. You know, a lot of people ask me, why are you writing about the culture and leadership practices of the tech titans? And we've touched on this a bit. Mm. And I'm like, you know, they're they're like, aren't they bad? It's like, yeah, of course, you know, they do bad things. But we have two, two options, really. One is to stand on the sidelines and point at them and say they're bad and ask somebody to come in and help. Uh, And that's possible. That's one good strategy. But I mean, judging by the way the U.S. government operates, I don't think that we're going to see any meaningful regulation anytime Mm. soon. And the other way is to co-opt the good parts, the productive parts, uh, the inventive parts of their system and put that into place in our own companies. And I don't think that uh, anyone who would say, you know, let's just point fingers and not learn about them is doing any real service to people who are trying to be competitive uh, in today's economy, whether you're running a company or whether you're on the line or somewhere in the middle. And so for me, it was just important to say, here are the systems, here are the the cultural and leadership secrets that are making these companies so adept uh, at at what they do, making them thrive in the economy that we're working on, working in now again with room for more idea work and less execution work. And basically say to the reader, I'm passing them over to you. This is the blueprint that they would never print out, never Mm -hmm. hand over. And let's co-opt them. Uh, and, and make it so that we don't have five enormous companies running our economy and everybody else running after them. Mm. If we start to pick up on some of the things they've done that have made them successful, that are above board, you know, we can even this thing out and give ourselves a chance. And so that's sort of like the message that I'm going to preach with this thing is like, let's let's co-opt these systems and, and implement them in good ways before, you know, giving up on the fact that these companies are controlling the world. Mm. Well said. Well, uh, if you would, uh, give us a bit of insight into your history with with reading and the impact that books have had uh, in your life. And if you can think of uh, two or three, maybe some specific books that uh, you like to go back to again and again because of that impact. I've loved to read since I was a kid. I, I kind of owe it to my parents uh, yeah. still the importance of reading. Or maybe they didn't want to talk to me and they said, Alex, <laughs> read about Thomas Edison again. You know, how many light bulbs are I'm up to light bulb 300 out of 10,000. OK, all right. Stay there. You know, uh, but yeah, I mean, reading has always been important to me. 
I, I think that, you know, we could probably agree and your readers, you know, your listeners, you know, might too, that, man, there's no better feeling than being lost in a book, right? Mm. And not, you know, turning those pages and not wanting it to end. And so uh, it's no surprise to me that the school that I ended up going to was uh, Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations. Mm. Uh, and again, this is sort of where the workplace stuff originates. And I actually went back and visited for the last chapter of the book, asking them how the world of work has changed since I was there 15 years ago. Uh, but it's called Industrial and Labor Relations, and they called it the ILR school. Everyone said it stood for I love reading <laughs> because of all the work that they assigned us to. So literally it was... <laughs> Basically, four straight years of sitting in a library and <laughs> putting down, uh, you know, text after text. So, so anyway, I, I reading's been important. Obviously, it's it's always like a good place to start when you're writing a book. Two books that that I you know really do love. One is the Forever War. It's uh, it's by Dexter Filkins, who's a reporter for the New Yorker now, and it mm. talks through sort of his experiences reporting on the ground in Afghanistan and, and Iraq through the wars there, you know, the ones that the U.S. have been involved in and then before. And I know mm. it's kind of off topic for, for a business author, but I think it's important for us to sort of be aware of what happened there. The access that he has to the folks uh, on both sides fighting the war is, is, is totally unbelievable now because mm. uh, it seems like terrorist groups right now, they don't speak to the press anymore. They make their own media. Mm. Uh, but before we went, to, we entered this age, they would actually speak to American reporters. You know, Filkins does this characters, you know, character study and can really, you know, bring you up close and personal with the story in a way that, you know, I don't think anyone, anyone will do again. And, and it's just a great book, uh, an eye opening. So, so that's one, uh, absolutely. And then I think uh, the Everything Store, uh, by Brad Stone that goes mm. into Amazon is just a sort of a terrific book. It is the, you know, one of the ultimate business books. And I, I read it ahead of writing always day one. And uh, good thing, because while I was down in Seattle or up in Seattle is probably the best way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> All the former Amazonians that I spoke with current ones, they said that this is definitely, you know, the key book about Amazon's early history. I would say that mine might be the, the key book about its recent history. Mm. Uh, but yeah, the two are, read, are, are you know best read together, I would say. Well, finally, Alex, I'm curious to know what's ahead for you and your team. I know you've just launched uh, this this new company, a uh, new podcast. Talk about what's what's coming up for you that you're excited about and willing to share. Yeah. So I, in June, started a company called Big Technology. You know, instead of working as a reporter at BuzzFeed, I wanted to be more self-guided and I wanted to do a podcast. So, mm. uh, so I launched it and every Wednesday I come out with a new podcast. It's called Big Technology Podcast, uh, available on all podcast apps. And I interview someone in and around the tech industry. Mm. We of course have like traditional guests, like uh, from the tech industry. I had a uh, box CEO Aaron Levy on recently, and we're going to have folks from Facebook and Twitter, I think, on pretty soon. But it also gets kind of weird sometimes. Uh, maybe the Black Mirror chapter is an indication of where mm. uh, I like to go. But I'm having uh, someone who deprograms people from cults who was in that documentary, The Vow, about wow. the Nexium cult. Uh, he, he's coming on and talking about like the internet and how it's replaced community for people and how they look to fill the void uh, with cults. Uh, so that should be an interesting one. And right after we get off the line, I'm going to interview Emma Lovewell, who's a Peloton instructor, mm. and talk mm. a little bit about why online fitness is taking over the world outside of the the obvious reasons that right. many of us are, are stuck at home. So and then the newsletter comes out every Thursday. It's a reported article about the tech giants. Mostly Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft, although sometimes we take little diversions into things that, that I find interesting. Uh, there's been articles about Slack and the whole Coinbase controversy in terms of you know them 
ditching the press and going direct uh, to, to readers and what that means. Mm. And yeah, it's been a total blast. It means we're coming up on six months, but uh, I, I've enjoyed it tremendously. And uh, I'm looking forward to keeping it going for, for at least another year. And if it works, great. I'll stick with it. And if not, then I think it's time to start thinking about another book. <laughs> Incredible. Well, the, this new book, again, or recent book, I should say, is called Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. It's his first it likely won't be his last. Alex, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we appreciate having you and you spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure to be on. And uh, thanks for having me. If you want to check out the books that Alex referenced, his podcast or any other links and resources we talked about, you just go to the page on my website dedicated to this episode, which can be found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 354 for episode 354. If you were to find yourself surfing around Amazon.com and manage to find a book called Read to Lead, the simple habit that expands your influence and boosts your career and thought to yourself, I got to have that book. Well, today's your lucky day because that book in physical form, at least, is available for pre-order right now on Amazon. Comes out officially on August 31st. You can search for Read to Lead on Amazon or go there directly by typing in readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. Next week, I'm going to try to help you discover the hidden forces that drive your best work as I welcome back for the fourth time, if memory serves, a guy by the name of Todd Henry as we dig into his book called The Motivation Code, Discover the Hidden Forces that Drive Your Best Work. Again, that's next week on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that does it for this go around. Look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read to Lead.